Dan, thank you for leading us in prayer this morning. Church, thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the, the church into uh, this sanctuary. And if you uh, if we've never met, uh, my name is Jamie. It is my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. So again, thanks for gathering. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, dining room, wherever you happen to be tuning in from. Uh, this morning, we have uh, this uh, resolution, really, of uh, concluding this series that we began back uh, at Easter time. Uh, this series called Rise, we're looking at the implications of the resurrection, that because Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death by rising again on the third day, we who are in him are now part of this resurrection story, this new life that's bursting forth right in the midst of the pain, the darkness, and the difficulty of this world. Um, and it's been this journey through this book called First Thessalonians, this letter that the apostle Paul writes to a church that he helped begin. Um, and he's having to leave them because of persecution and all this turmoil that's happening, but he gets word about how they're doing and some of the questions that they have. And so he writes them, he pens them this letter. And as we'll see here in a moment, he commands that it be read to all the people in the, the church there. And so this morning, we're gonna be in the conclusion of First Thessalonians, the conclusion to uh, this series. And so I wanna invite you to turn to First Thessalonians chapter five. We're gonna be in verses 12 to 28. That'll take us through the end of the letter. There are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can grab one of those, take one of those Bibles home with you. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can also scan the QR code. That'll bring up a little menu where it says sermon notes. You can click that. The text will be there. Some things that I put up on the screen will be there as well. Some space to take notes, or you can always just go to thisiscp.church. It'll bring up that same menu uh, as you click the little next steps icon. Um, but as turn here. Um, I'm going to invite you in just a moment to stand, but just stay seated for just, just a moment. Um, uh, this, um, I find some comfort in this um, because I think all pastors are, are the same. Um, you all have to sit through um, those moments where you're like, I think he's probably getting near the end of the sermon. All right. Like you, you kind of are gauging that. You kind of have a feel uh, for that. Or maybe you can see the screen there that has the, the clock. Some of you didn't know that it was there. I pay no attention to it, but anyway, it's there. Um, and you have those, those moments. Um, and then the pastor will say something like, I got, you know, one more point, which is typically a lie because it means there's like several more things or just one more thing. And what I'm about to read, though it's a written sermon in, in many ways, I feel like it's Paul being like, oh, I got this loose end. I meant to say this and I got this and I wanted to make sure I said this. And it's just like, there are a number of topics here that any one of them we could kind of isolate and be like, well, let's do a whole sermon on that, maybe even a whole series on it. And it sort of feels like, wow, he's jumping from this to this to this. But I think if we zoom out, we'll understand a bit of like what Paul's trying to do here in his final words in this great letter. So let me go ahead and read. If you would, if you're able, please stand as I read God's word this morning. First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse 12. We ask you brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Verse 23, 
And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in this particular text that does admittedly jump around, there's a lot of different topics that one could get into. It had me thinking this week about um, a book that I've come back to often. It's this short uh, little book by the pastor and theologian named Ray Ortland. Um, he served for a number of years up in Nashville, planted a, a church up there in the church planning network that we're, we're part of. And he just serves pastors. Um, I'd commend really all of his works to you. But this book in particular, this little tiny hardcover book that's about this big, less than a hundred pages with this green cover that's simply entitled The Gospel. And in this particular book, Ray Ortland does a really beautiful job of unpacking a couple things. It's this conviction that gospel culture, or I'm sorry, gospel doctrine leads to and cultivates a gospel culture. And so in this short little book, he unpacks in no uncertain terms how important gospel doctrine is. Like we have to know gospel doctrine. We have to know about the, the life, the death, the resurrection, the promised return of Jesus. Like you and I need to know that Jesus died in our place. We need to know that the wages of sin is death, that there was a wrath that should have been poured out on you and on me, but instead was poured out on Jesus. And we got imputed to us all his righteousness. Like we need to know, like deep in our bones, we need to know gospel doctrine. You should never go to a church, be part of a church, join a church that does not proclaim the gospel. If it makes it about you, all right, we're missing the point, all right? The point is Jesus and how he's at work. And so gospel doctrine is so important. And yet what Ortland also masterfully and beautifully does is showcases for us, as important as that is, it's that as it gets into a church community, it actually births something. It's meant not to just stay in the objective realm, but rather it's to seep in, it's to form a particular kind of community, a particular kind of culture. And my guess is this, you've probably had this experience. You know this to be true, right? You could attend two different churches and read through their theological belief statement and be like, oh, these are like almost like word for word and yet have a very different experience in each one of those churches. Because every church embodies a particular culture. And so it's, not po it's, it's possible to have all of the gospel doctrine sort of boxes checked and not necessarily have this culture that's being formed and fashioned in light of the gospel and through the gospel. And I think what we see here in these closing verses of Paul as he writes, is Paul commending to the people, here's what it's gonna take for you to have not just gospel doctrine, but to have this gospel culture. Here are these words from Ray Ortland in the book, The Gospel. He says this, the doctrine of grace, it creates a culture of grace. And I love this line, where good things happen to bad people. We oftentimes are like, what do bad things happen to good people? It might be more astonishing that good things happen to bad people. Right? And so he says, that's the culture of grace, a gracious church culture 
proves that Jesus is the Holy One who forgives sinners, the King who befriends his enemies and the genius who counsels failures. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture do not coexist by lucky chance. The doctrine creates and it sustains the culture. And he says this, the way we live together in our churches, it grows out of what we believe together. So the gospel must land on each of us personally. You and I must believe the gospel for ourselves first and foremost, but the gospel also creates a new kind of community, a gospel culture called a church. And as we get here, the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians, I believe Paul has for us amongst this, this list, and we could break it down in numerous ways. There are four things, I believe, that stand out in these closing verses that speak to how do we have not just gospel doctrine, but how do we have a, a culture centered on the gospel, a gospel culture, or maybe another way to think about it is this, this message is geared towards helping us understand how can we be a gospel-centered church? How can we have the gospel inform everything about our lives individually and collectively? And so Paul lays out so beautifully for us four key things that we see in this particular text. And the first thing that he speaks to as we look at verses 12 to 13 is he speaks about the leadership that he put in place there. So he has to leave, he has to flee town, he's out of Thessalonica, but he did establish leaders there, that there were pastors, elders, that there were servant leaders there in the church in Thessalonica. In verses 12 to 13, we see him speak of this. He says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and in those that admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, this could seem a bit odd. It's like, okay, well, here's the pastor finding those verses that talk about like how to treat the pastor, right? Um, but what I, what I think we really need to see here is Paul's driving at a couple of things about what it's going to take to have this gospel culture. And it certainly involves, as we get further into this text, the whole community coming together. But we do need to see that God in his care for his church, that Jesus as the ultimate shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd has under shepherds, those to help care for his church, the one that he died for. And what does that relationship look like? And what should we even be looking for in a church? And, and Paul says this, he's like, so respect those who labor. Now, I want to call your attention to a couple of things. We'll talk about that like over you and what do we mean by that and admonishing, all right? But Paul, first and foremost, is speaking to, there are those that are laboring to see this gospel community birthed. He's speaking specifically of the hard work that it's going to take to see this actually come to fruition. There was something a few years ago that I, I learned of, many of you perhaps had heard this long before, but it took a Super Bowl commercial about four or five years ago, I believe, for Ram trucks, all right, um, as this commercial played and there was just images of kind of like, um, you know, like the American heartland, right? Um, and showcasing like farmers and animals in the fields and, and all of this stuff. And over these images, there was this voice, this very distinct voice of somebody named Paul Harvey. And it was, this radio address that he had given decades before. I didn't, wasn't aware of that. Some of you maybe were familiar with him, would listen to him on the radio. Some of you are like, what's a radio? I, I get that we're talking about many generations here, right? Um, but this distinct thing that he had written, and again, I learned of it when I saw it in a commercial. 
But let me read to you a portion of it. Paul Harvey has this thing that he put together, this reading, so God made a farmer. And he's speaking here of labor and he's speaking of the work. And so here's the words. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. And God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die, then dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an ax handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make a harness out of haywire, feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40 hour week by Tuesday noon. And then paint in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farm. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed and rake and disc and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk and replenish the self-feeder and finish a hard week's work with a five mile drive to church. Somebody who would bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farm. I remember seeing that and hearing that and, and all the images, like what it called to mind. And if you've ever spent any time around a farmer, if that's part of your like family history, you know this, it is not something that you just kind of opt into when you feel like, oh, maybe I'll put in an hour here and an hour there. Like it is, it involves like all of who you are the workload, the investment, the, the prayer, the care, the cultivation the early mornings and the late nights. And so when Paul uses this word here to respect those who labor among you, Paul functionally is saying for this gospel community, this culture to be birthed, it is going to take work and it's gonna take everybody in. And part of God's way to cultivate this is to bring leaders to the church that don't live in a way that they're like over people and you gotta respect the org chart and I'm in authority, but rather would be servants to all. And it's gonna take the only the gospel can fuel that sword of labor. We cannot do that in the flesh. There's no amount of motivation that we can drum up to be like, all right, we're gonna create this on our own because it is hard, hard work. And so Paul is intentionally using language. Labor there speaks of the farmer. It speaks of those who have this devotion to their work and to the land of seeing something cultivated. And Paul is saying, take that image, all right? Whereas Paul Harvey would speak of like, take that and now say, this is what it's going to take when we're talking about this spiritual cultivation. And so it tells us that God put leaders there in place. But if we get concerned, because in some ways I think we should be concerned, I don't think it would be healthy for all of us to walk around with like a cynicism and a doubt toward leadership. But I also recognize it and I get it. You literally don't have to do much other than like turn on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime and you can find any number of documentaries and different series and things that speak to the failures in church leadership. And you don't even have to go like way out there. Like we know these realities, right? And so there's, there's this weightiness about these matters. So how are we to think about these things? And Sometimes we live in a culture that is like, man, because of all the failures and the missteps and the mistakes, like, I just want to go do my own thing. We don't need any sort of leadership. And Paul's pushing back against that. But at the same time, Paul is not speaking of a heavy-handed leadership. 
He's not speaking of an arrogant leadership. He's not speaking of those that, that make it about them and try to live to become sort of a celebrity pastor. He's like, no, 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 the Bible knows nothing of that. In fact, when the disciples themselves and a few of them kind of cozied up to Jesus and they left the other 12 and a couple of them said, hey, basically in the way like somebody might cozy up to a president elect saying like, hey, when you're putting your cabinet together, can I have this spot? Can I have this spot? Can I have this position of influence? You had some of the disciples who were trying to kind of ride the coattails of Jesus. They see his power and his influence. And they're like, we want a piece of that. And Jesus turns it completely on its head and says, if that's what you think this is, you've missed it. I'm here to build not only gospel doctrine, but gospel culture. I'm, I'm here to establish the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. But the way it's gonna move forward is through servant-oriented leadership and life and doctrine, everything fueled by the gospel. So in Mark chapter 10, in a rebuke of these disciples, Jesus says this, he calls them, called them to himself. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, what do they do? What's the way of the world? Lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It's not that the Bible never speaks of authority, but there's a lording it over. There's a, hey, I'm in charge. You need to listen to me. It's my way or the highway sort of mentality. And Jesus is like, that's, that's the way of the world. That's the way of the culture. That's not the kind of culture I'm seeking to cultivate, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then in this astonishing statement, Jesus says in verse 45, for even the son of man, the one with all the power, the one who literally deserved everyone to just listen to him, for even the son of man came, what? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus looks out over these 12. He looks out over the crowds as he peers into future. And he sees you and he sees me and he knows what we need. And he knows that we are slaves to sin. And the only way that we can be set free is a ransom has to be paid to purchase our freedom. And Jesus willingly goes to the cross. This is what gospel leadership looks like. This is Jesus saying, I will lay down my life for you. And servant friends, he's saying, you need to lay down your life so that this culture can be cultivated. Like the imagery over and over and over again, like what to look for in leaders and what we should aspire to is this, this farm imagery and this labor that there's a humility, they're humble and they're hardworking. And Jesus is saying to us, and what Paul is reminding the Thessalonians is like, hey, search for that and then surrender and submit yourself. Like every single one of us should have an answer to this question. Who are you submitted to? Because everything in our culture just says, well, you just do you, like what you want to do. And you follow your heart and it's functionally trying to surrender to yourself. This doesn't work. Who actually can speak into your life? Who can speak into my life? When we start operating like we're untouchable, like we are near the end. It will not go well for you, for me, for anybody. And it will destroy a community. But the more we're informed and transformed by the gospel, we begin to live in a whole new way. So the first thing we see is gospel leadership is so necessary to a healthy functioning gospel culture. Then their gospel community, this gospel fellowship, Paul then begins to very specifically speak about us and like what we are all doing because he addresses the community and he says, brothers, and now you have to hear this. It always means brothers and sisters. So he's saying brothers and sisters, yes, there's leaders that have been put in particular roles, but I'm now addressing you, brothers and sisters, make sure you know this. It's all of us coming together. 
In fact, the leaders are there to equip you for the work of ministry. I love the way Larry Crabb speaks of this in his, his book, Becoming a True Spiritual Community. It's this sort of image, like what if we turned our chairs toward each other? Like I get right now, right? That this is set up in such a way that this is a monologue, right? And that you guys are all facing this way and I'm looking out that way. And that has its, has its purpose and its point in this. And we'll talk about the worship gathering, the importance of it in a moment. But friends, we need times where our chairs are turning toward one another because I need you to see me and I need to see you and you need to see people next to you and across from you and behind you. Like we need to actually see one another. So we might see the needs and we might move toward one another. Again, gospel community, we look to see people as Jesus sees us, as Jesus moves toward us in love and compassion. It's not just something for the leaders or certain roles. Well, that's their job and they do that. No, no, this is all of us. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, Paul says this, we urge you, like he's pleading with them. My brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak and be patient with them all. So what Paul's doing here is he's speaking in some specifics. He's making sure that our approach is not like this, right? Like you've heard the old adage before, like if you're a hammer, you see everything as what? A nail, right? And so some of us, we need to ask, like, is, is this our approach to, to ministry? It's like, hey, I've got one skill. I've got one thing that I do. And you just go around like, just sort of like, beating people up with it in essence, right? Um, and sometimes it might be, oh yeah, that actually worked, all right? Like that was a nail that needed to be pounded in, so to speak, right? But what Paul, when he says these things, he's like, hey, if we're gonna have gospel culture, you gotta pay attention to nuance. You gotta pay attention and help, ask the spirit to help you discern like what's going on in this person's life because not everybody needs the exact same thing in the same way. Like we all need the gospel, but how is that going to be applied? And what might that actually look like? Instead of us just being a church that goes around like, oh, this is what we got, right? How do we pay attention? And so Paul, again, breaks it down, admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. This is not an exhaustive list, but I think it does get at some general categories. And so as you think about your care for one another, for the community that God has brought together, sometimes there are gonna be those that need to be admonished. This is the idol. And there's a note perhaps in your, your Bible, a little footnote um, that would speak of the idol are actually those that stir up drama. So it's not just sitting on the sidelines, it can be that. And there's some of that theme in, throughout Thessalonians of some that have like, they've stopped working, all right? And Paul's like, hey, you need to like, do your work, get a job. It might, might be a minute before Jesus returns, right? So like do some of these things. But there are also those that Paul would say in second Thessalonians, like those who are busy being busybodies. They're stirring up drama everywhere they go. And so he's saying, you need to admonish those folks. Now you don't do that. It's like a jerk for Jesus, right? Do it in kindness and compassion, but you might have to say some things. You might have to admonish them. You might speak the truth in love. And he says, there are some that are so faint hearted that they need courage spoken in them, breathed into them. It's likely that what Paul has in mind are many of those who had questions after their loved ones passed away. Many who had lost spouses or brothers and sisters or, or parents or siblings or neighbors or friends. And they're wondering about the implications of this. Well, this person died before Jesus came back. And what does this all, all mean? They've got lots of legitimate questions. They're dealing with grief, all right? If you try and admonish those who are faint-hearted, hey man, 
it, it, it's been a couple of months. You probably should be over this by now, right? Like if you speak to somebody's grief in that way, that is not gonna go well. Grief's not on your timetable. It's not on their timetable. Like there's gonna be waves of that that hit at different times. What they actually need is some encouragement to literally help infuse their life with courage so they can just face the day that is in front of them, dealing with the loss and the hardship and the suffering. So you gotta admonish the idol, but you gotta encourage the faint-hearted and then help the weak. And again, this might be a bit of just kind of a catch-all category, but it likely includes those that perhaps are dealing with some physical limitations or difficulties. And Paul's saying, like, how do you come alongside them and help them? Perhaps it, it's um, that maybe it's not physically, but they're just by their own admission would be like, hey, there's certain things in life. Like I can't seem to, to figure this out. Like, and you maybe have a particular gifting in it, right? It might be as practical as something that comes very natural to you is like, hey, I can easily put together a budget. I can look at things. I can help sort that, categorize that. And somebody's like, I don't know how to do that. And I'm completely overwhelmed to come alongside and say, hey, let me help you with those things. It might be bringing a meal to somebody. It might be helping somebody with their yard work. It might be giving somebody a ride to the airport. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to just come alongside and help those who have a particular need. But in all of this, we need discernment. We need to see and recognize, like not everything is a nail to be hammered in, but rather, what is this image bearer need? Lord, use me. Use us together in that person's life. That's what Paul is encouraging. We want a gospel culture, we need to be paying attention to like what's going on and then speaking the truth in love and finding practical ways to come alongside. And then Paul says this in verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And I read one commentary this week, which I thought was helpful. The commentator asked like, hey, why does Paul put that right after this call to admonish and encourage and to, to help? right? Like it almost seems a little out of nowhere. Like see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Was anybody thinking about doing that? Like why does that follow on the heels of what he said in verse 14? And then the commentator raised, I think, a really interesting point. And when he raised it, I was like, ooh, ouch, that hurts because I can see myself doing this. I don't walk around thinking, I'm going to repay evil for evil. But let me ask you something. Have you ever entered into somebody's story and you sought to admonish them in love? You weren't, you weren't trying to call attention to yourself or shame them. You were trying to do the right thing and it wasn't received well. And they dug their heels in and they doubled down on what they were doing and you just felt the tension and the contentiousness and the, the lack of peace. Or perhaps if you moved towards those that, that were faint-hearted and you tried to, tried to encourage them and they just responded in a way that like, hey, that, that wasn't helpful. Or maybe you tried to, to help the weak some, somebody was dealing with something and what you maybe heard, not directly from them, but kind of through the great mind is like, hey, what you did wasn't enough or you did it in the wrong way or you, you should have done more. Like, have you had those things where people have responded to the help that you've given to them and they have rejected it, not received it or critiqued it? And if you're human, I think the answer to that is yes. I don't know the particulars, but we've all dealt with that. And then if your heart, maybe it's holier than mine, but I know my heart in that moment rises up, something wells up. And it's like, okay, well, if that's how it's gonna be, right? Do you not realize all that I did for you? Do you not see the sacrifice, the time, the energy, the resources? Do you not see what I did for you? If you don't care about what I've given to you, if you're just gonna critique that, well then fine. And then now we're in the mode of repaying evil for evil. And how does the gospel shape this? Well, has there been ever a time in your life and in my life 
where we have received the admonishment of Jesus, the encouragement of Jesus, the help of Jesus. And whether spoken aloud or not, our thought process has been like, I don't wanna hear that. I don't wanna receive that. That's not enough. You gave this person this and you didn't give me this. Why is this happening to me? And what are we doing in those moments? We are rejecting the very care that our Lord and Savior Jesus is giving to us. And yet what does Jesus do? He keeps moving toward us. He keeps admonishing us in love. He keeps bringing encouragement to us. He keeps sacrificing. He keeps being that, he is that, that ransom. He is willing to give everything. And so the next time somebody doesn't respond well to the care that you are providing them, all right? And you're even thinking, hey, I'm doing a good job. And you're maybe expecting to like pat on the back and instead you get the critique. Just remember, don't repay evil for evil because that's not gonna create the gospel culture that we want, but rather remember the ways that you have not received, but have rather rejected the care of Jesus. And yet he keeps moving towards you and he keeps being patient with you. And he keeps being kind toward you, toward me. And it fuels this culture that we're after. Megan Hill in her, play, her book, A Place to Belong says this, throughout the New Testament, God commands us to mutual care in the local church. These one another commands are instructions for our family life. Belonging to the church, hear this, will always increase our obligations and decrease our independence. And this is good. This is by God's design. This is how it should be. Now, there's a level of which, hey, you're gonna, once you're probably gonna light off some fireworks in a couple of days. Fireworks have already started. I was on a walk last night. I'm like, come on guys. It's like in two days from now, dogs going crazy, right? But anyway, so fireworks, independence, we celebrate that. Praise God for that. Praise God for the freedoms, all of that. But let's also recognize that, that idea of what we might long for our country and in independence. There's this aspect of that when it comes to the Christian community and family, we have to recognize though that part of our independence needs to die in order that a gospel community can emerge. And so, yeah, if you're gonna be part of the church, it's not a call to like, hey, it's cool. Like whatever you wanna do, come whenever you want. Just, you know, kind of stay on the sidelines. That's what Jesus wants for you. No, no, no. To be partnered with a local church, which is the call of every Christian, obligations go up, which means independence has to go down. Then again, what do we do? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus who emptied himself, who gave, he did not grasp the authority, the rights, the things that belonged to him, but rather sacrificed that independence, sacrificed those things for the good of you and of me. This is what fuels gospel community. As we look now, Paul turns his attention to this call to gospel worship, particularly in verses 18 to 22, though it's spoken of again, even toward the end of the letter where he speaks of, I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers. Paul is speaking of a call to worship. And I think that means like worship in the everyday, worship whatever you do, whether word, deed, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But I also think he's speaking here to this gathering. It's like what's happening right now, this gathering together. And so Paul says, rejoice always. Rejoice always in the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Do you know the needs and concerns of people in the church? Are you praying for them, interceding for them? Are you going before the Lord for them? What would it look like for us as a church to, to grow in that? Now rejoice always doesn't mean that you're always happy and you just got this disposition. It's like, you're just the eternal optimist. If that's it, I'm out, all right? Um, but rather it's this call that despite circumstances, like 
I need to be reminded to rejoice always, meaning I need to see the importance of this, to come and be reminded about what is true, what is ultimately true about God and who I am as part of this resurrection story. That's why Paul's saying it, rejoice always, like always come together, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Even that idea, give thanks, like in a few minutes, we're gonna participate in communion. And maybe you grew up in a tradition, all right, where it's called communion or it's called the Lord's Supper, or maybe you grew up in a tradition where it's referred to as the Eucharist. That word there, thanks, to give thanks, all right, comes from the Greek word where we get this word Eucharist. And the ultimate thanksgiving, it was meant in a general sense, but the ultimate thanksgiving became for the church is what? The broken body and shed blood of Jesus. The thing I give ultimate thanks for is that Jesus died for me. And so our worship all flows out of this. It's why we do this every week, all right? Because we need to be reminded, we need to be nourished. We need this means of God's grace. Like everything in the service is building to this. And now this is our response to the grace that's been offered, the word spoken, all of that. And we are fed, we are nourished. We are reminded again and again of what we have to give thanks for. And it's Jesus. And then Paul says, do not quench the spirit, which again, we could spend a lot of time trying to unpack that, but don't quench it. The spirit is actively at work. The spirit's doing something right here in this moment. And the tendency and the temptation is gonna to be to ignore that. Maybe there's some conviction about something that's been said, a relationship that needs some repair. And like, oh, I'll do that another time. Don't quench the spirit. Pay attention to the spirit. And this says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Again, we could spend more time on this, but what Paul is getting at, don't think prophecy like predictive future, all right? That's not what he's speaking of. Most scholars believe he's speaking at a couple different levels. He's not talking about prophets in the way like biblical Old Testament prophets or even Paul, who is writing literally the word of God. It's not that level of prophecy, because if that was the case, then we would have to be adding to the scriptures and the canon, like it's closed. But it does speak to that at times, maybe you've experienced this, somebody will say, hey, I feel like the Lord is bringing this word, like I need to tell you this, share this with you. Like, don't quench the spirit when that word comes to you, like share it, but then it says, test it. Test it in light of the scriptures. Like if somebody ever says something to you, it's like, this is a word from the Lord. And then it doesn't align with the rest of the scriptures. It's not from the Lord. That's just, you know, the burrito not sitting well with them that they had at lunch, right? Like that's, that's not what that means. But there are times that God will like speak. And I don't mean like, like lowercase p prophecy, meaning like he's, he's gonna speak through his people to encourage one another. There can be that. But also it's what's happening right now, that there's a proclamation of God's word. Again, like this is the only holy and errant thing, not the things that come out of my mouth, right? Lots of unholy, lots of errant things come out of my mouth, right? Both in preaching and not preaching. But the call that Paul is saying is like, hey, don't despise, like get yourself into a place where like you hear the word of God proclaimed, where it's not about you, but it's about Jesus, all right? It doesn't need to be the most captivating thing ever. It doesn't need to be the like, wow, that was, that was amazing, right? Like in many ways, we're just going for the everyday, ordinary, mundane, non-spectacular, right? Like I hope you're encouraged today, but I also just know like the spirit is at work, whether or not you ever remember any words that are said because he's shaping us right here in the moment as well. And so he says, but test everything. You should test what you hear preached from here. Most weeks, that's me, right? You should test that. You should read your Bible. You should be like, hey, I don't know about that. I got a question about that. Like that's a good and healthy thing. 
In his book, You Are What You Love, I wanna read this little bit lengthy quote, James K.A. Smith says it this way, talking about the importance of the gathered service. It's not the only thing. We just talked about a whole host of things that happen and spill out from here. But you want a desire for things of God? What shapes your desires, what shapes your loves is not just gathering a bunch of gospel doctrine, all right? But rather this worship as we're like embodied people and we're worshiping together, something is happening through the rituals, the practice. Maybe a way to think about it is through the liturgy that we're doing together, right? Through the songs that are sung, through the confession, the assurance, the passing of the peace, like all of these things are molding us and shaping us sitting under the proclamation of God's word, participating in the Eucharist. All of these things are having an impact. And so Smith says it this way, worship is the heart of discipleship. Worship is the sacramental center of God's transforming grace. You might think of worship as the repair station for our erotic compasses. Now, don't hear like in a sexual sense, what he means by erotic is like the desires of our heart. And like the compass that we operate with is off. And so like, we need our true north. We need to know like, oh, we're oriented this way towards God and his glory. This is what the gathering does. It reorients us. So think about it as a repair station for our erotic compasses. Or he says, as John Calvin, Calvin talked about the worship service as a gymnasium, which was an easier point to make when we actually met in a gymnasium for years. Praise God for this space. I do not miss the YMCA, all right? But it was this visual reminder every week of what he's talking about here. Or as Calvin suggested, think of the church's worship as the gymnasium in which the spirit puts us through the paces of a spiritual workout that restores us, restores our hearts. And some mornings, man, you wake up and let's be honest, you don't want to work out, right? Some of you woke up this morning like, I don't know if I want to be here, but this is so important. He says, you know, I get it. Your bed is so comfortable and the world outside is so cold or not. If you're in Florida, it would be so easy to just stay where you are but the people of God are not there and the sacraments of the spirit aren't there. And you know that even if you don't quote, feel like it, you need the meal that is the Lord's supper. You need the nourishment of the word. You know the sort of person you want to be and know that immersing yourself in this story is how the spirit is going to change your habit. And as those are changed, your, your love is cultivated. Your desires are actually changed for the things of God. And so it's not meant in some legalistic way, like thou shall never miss a Sunday. But if we wanna have more than just gospel doctrine on point, but a gospel community, a gospel culture, so much happens in this space and flows out for me. And we close with this. Paul concludes with really a benediction. It's a gospel blessing and there's this gospel confidence. And there's a lot that could be said here, all right? Um, some of the things we're probably happy that they've changed culturally. You know, if we're like, hey, gospel culture, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We're not planning on bringing that back next week during the passing of the peace. I mean, if you wanna go for it, like all power to you. Um, but I get that some things have, have changed, right? But again, Paul is speaking to the gathered. These are not just things to do in, as isolated individuals. You cannot greet somebody with a holy kiss if they're not there. He's very, making some very simple but profound points. Like, no, like we need one another. And so there's this gospel confidence. There's this invitation. And to me, I want to just zero in on what he says, particularly in verses 23 and 24. And so he says this, now may the God of peace, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, meaning make you whole, make you like Jesus, transform you. The God of peace himself, he's not detached from it. He's doing the work. He's the active agent. He's praying this blessing over a people. 
Hear this being prayed over you right now. May the God of peace, do you know him as that himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body, like all of who you are, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. He has promised it. He has conquered Satan's sin and death and he is sanctifying you. As Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God has not given up on you. You might've given up on yourself, all right? But some of the people that you, that you care about, you're like, I don't know if God is at work. God is at work. If they are in Christ, he is seeing it through. And then I love this line, verse 24, hear this. He who calls you is faithful. You may not be faithful. I may not be faithful. In fact, we are faithless oftentimes, but he who calls you, the Lord himself, he is faithful and he will surely do it. It's not up to you. It's not up to me and our fickle nature. No, no, it's God in his faithful nature and character. Jesus has secured the victory. Jesus is the conquering king and he's coming back to set everything right. He is faithful and he will surely do it. And we get to stand with him victorious. I will try and close with this, despite all the things I said at the beginning, right? Maybe there's 17 more points, who knows? But um, I'll close with this story. Some of you have probably heard me say this before, but a number of years ago, um, Heather and I had the ingenious idea of signing up for a triathlon. Don't think like Ironman, think sprint triathlon, like the shortest one that they, that they do. Um, and it was over in like Baldwin Park community, which means like the swim was in Lake Baldwin where they did like military testing years ago. Seemed like a really safe place to go and swim, all right? It was the nastiest thing I've ever encountered. Uh, but anyway, uh, we, we did this, this whole thing. Uh, my wife, who actually is good at these things and trains for these things, and I went and ate donuts basically. But like, um, uh, we went out and, you know, completed it. She will tell you the story that midway through, she heard an ambulance siren. She's like, oh no, Jamie, what's happened to him? Um, but at the conclusion, you know, like I got my like participation uh, trophy and a banana and like a bottle of water um, and uh, found out that Heather had actually won her age group. All right. Um, and finished third of all the women overall. Yeah, that's impressive. You can clap for that. Yeah. Um, I married up clearly, right? I'm just like, <gasps> like, all right, anyway. Um, and so after the race had kind of completed, there was this moment, there was actually like an award ceremony. And rather than just getting the participation t-shirt that you basically paid for with your registration fee, she actually like got some additional recognition, all right? And she got this big medal that was gonna be placed on her, right? And there was like these podium uh, spots. And so they called her name and she got to go up there, all right? To kind of like claim her, her victory, right? To go to go up on, on this spot. And remember snapping this picture, our youngest daughter, McKinley, I, maybe she's five, I, I don't know. We'll just go with five, six, somewhere in there. Um, you, can, you can see this. Um, uh, and I did tell Heather yesterday, being the kind person, I was like, I was like this illustration would be way better if you'd actually finished first. Um, but, um, but anyway, so just go with it, right? Um, and uh, so there's McKinley. And I was supposed to be keeping track of her, her and her sister, Sydney. Um, and in reality, before I knew what was going on, she had run up there. And as Heather's name was being announced and as the award was being presented and as people were cheering for her, she just kind of stood there like it was all for her just smiling, thank you, you know, like waving to everybody, just like basking in the victory that she had nothing to do with. That's what's coming for us. Like we get to stand with Jesus and get to bask and we get everything that he earned, everything that he deserves, all the medals, all the, the crown, all of it that goes to him that he's entitled to, that he earned is gonna be given to us. That's the inheritance that he's guarding. Like he is faithful, he will surely do it. We just get to stand up on the podium and be like, hey, what's up? And we didn't do a thing 
All we contributed was our mess, our sin, our shame, our brokenness. And Jesus took all of that. And he says, here, this is what I've secured for you. We're part of this resurrection story. And then Paul concludes the way that he began the letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's all his grace through and through. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, not only this morning, but throughout this series. Thank you for this letter and the ways that you've used it to mold us and shape us and instruct us. Would you birth in us, not just clarity regarding gospel doctrine, but would you create a gospel culture? Would you create a gospel-centered church for your glory, for our joy, for the good of our neighbors, Lord? Thank you for the ways that you're doing that. We ask for more of that, God, not to make much of the name of Crosspoint, but we want your name made much of, that there might be more worship of you and that more people might experience the liberating grace of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you came as that ransom for us. May we remember that. May we celebrate that. We thank you for this great Thanksgiving now that we get to participate in in a few moments, this Eucharist, this communion, this Lord's Supper. God, I pray that you would nourish us, that you would minister to us by your grace. Receive our praises now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.